Well, as we conclude our Bedrock series this week, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, again back to the Sermon on the Mount um, found in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And as you're turning there, uh, these last weeks we've been talking about what matters most uh, when we talk about our mission uh, as a church. And, and we've talked about um, being servants and, and practicing uh, a servant's attitude amongst ourselves and, and out in the world. Uh, we, we've talked about uh, being avid worshipers in both uh, public and in private. We've talked about living in community with one another and, and practicing hospitality. And last week we talked a little bit about um, our doctrine, about uh, the idea that, that we are both uh, learners and we are teachers. And, and today, as we, as we conclude, there's, there's one piece that we've kind of been hinting at all along, because all of the things that we've talked about there is both something that uh, is internal, it, it affects us personally, but it never ends with us. It always is extended out to somebody else. And so as we, as we finish up the series, uh, we can't not talk about being a public witness for Christ in the world. Um, my, my hope and prayer has been that uh, this series of sermons has challenged you, uh, like it's challenged me. I've talked to a few people, and I, I think that's the case. Uh, a few people described the sermons recently as a bit pokey, um, not as in a slow feeling, but uh, pokey as in like getting jabbed with a sharp stick. Um, and it got me thinking, uh, Jesus does that to us once in a while. Jesus uh, is referred to as the good shepherd, right? And a shepherd, every time I see an image of a shepherd, I, I see him holding a staff. And the shepherd's staff has two ends to it. There is the, uh, there's the loving, nurturing end of the staff, and there's the business end of the staff. The, uh, the loving... Nurturing end of the staff is, is the hook. You know the picture that I'm talking about, the shepherds when they have their staff? There's, there's oftentimes a, a, a hook on one end. And, that, and that's the loving, nurturing end. That's the end that, that when necessary, the, the, the shepherd can put that hook around a sheep and keep them close to the rest of the flock. That's the, the loving, nurturing end that, that when a sheep strays away or, or finds itself caught in a place, the shepherd can reach out with that staff and, and hook the sheep and bring it to safety. There, there, there's that loving, nurturing, keeping close to the flock end of the staff. That's the hook. Then, the, then there's the other end of the staff, the business end. If if we had modern-day shepherds, it would probably be armed with a taser on one end. I mean, this is the behavior modification end of the stick. It's a little bit pointy once in a while. It reminds me of um, 
in our household growing up, when I was a kid, uh, we had Pauline the paddle for behavior modification. And I know, Mom and Dad, you're listening, so I, I will not misrepresent anything that happened with Pauline. Um, actually, we had two Paulines, because Pauline number one had an untimely demise uh, through a certain experience with my backside. Pauline number one broke. Pauline number two, I think, was recruited from the women's, women's East German All-Star Olympic team. <laughs> Pauline number two, you didn't mess around with her. Behavior modification. Shepherd's staff has two ends. One's the loving, nurturing end. The other end is the, the business end of the stick. That once in a while, Jesus needs to give us a little bit of a poke. Now, he always loves us. But his work in our life doesn't always feel like a warm, gentle, loving embrace. Now, that part of Jesus is there. He loves us dearly. But once in a while, he needs to take the sharp end of the stick and move us along. Uh, it's not always, come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. It's not always that warm, fuzzy feeling. Sometimes it's, hey, get on with what I've told you to do. Sometimes it's, get off your couch. Sometimes it's quit nodding your head yes and get busy with doing the gospel and not just talking about it. See, sometimes he, he challenges our thinking. Sometimes he stretches us. And when we work out our muscles and they get stretched, they hurt for a little bit. But when they come back together and repair themselves, they come back stronger. See, Jesus is loving and affirming and supporting, but, but sometimes he just needs to confront us where we are. He needs to con confront our thought. He needs to confront our value systems. He needs to confront our behavior. I mean, Jesus accepted the rich young man uh, that we read about in the Gospels. He accepted him. He loved him. But what did he do? He challenged him to give away his possessions because they were holding him back from embracing the Jesus way of life. And he accepted the woman. He loved the woman who was caught in adultery and, and brought before him. But what did he tell her? He said, go and sin no more. There's a loving embrace, the hook end of the stick. But there's, that, there's also that little jab. You know what? You don't need to live that life of sin any longer. Get on with it. Go and sin no more. See, Jesus accepts everybody, period. He will affirm you as a person. He will treat you with dignity. He will treat you with respect. But he's also going to challenge your behavior. He's also going to challenge your thoughts. He's going to confront the sin that you have in your life. He's going to confront the places where we just go about life in a lukewarm kind of a fashion. Places where we don't obey what he commands of us. He uses both ends of the stick on a regular basis. And, and that leads us to today's topic, because it, it doesn't get any easier than, than the first 
four things that we've talked about. In fact, it might, it might feel a little bit more pokey. Um, when we talk about being a witness, the Greek word there that's most often used, listen to it, it's called martyria. Do you hear another word in that? Martyr, being a witness. Martyria means evidence. It means testimony. It's translated oftentimes as witness. Being a credible witness for Jesus in our world. Tighten that in a little bit more. Being a little bit more specific, it means being a credible Christian witness to people that we can name. People that we know. Not just, hey, I'm going to live my life in a good Jesus-like way and assume that people are going to catch on. It's living your life intentionally and praying for people so that they may come to know Christ through us. I think it's one of those areas that a lot of people struggle with. Um, Sometimes witnessing, evangelizing, it, it seems a little bit scary. In much of North American Christianity, I think a lot of people who attend church assume that uh, evangelism should be left to religious professionals. And oftentimes, you know, hey, if, if I just jot down a few names, if I scratch them out on a little sticky note, I can hand them to my pastor and in essence say, sick them, go get them. But it's a little bit more than that. And then Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he has just talked about the blessings of the kingdom in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Right after he talks about the blessings of being part of this kingdom, he talks about the obligations. He talks about the responsibilities. So as we read the few verses for today, it's Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. I'd ask that you stand in honoring the authority of Jesus' words here. He continues this sermon. After saying all of these, you are blessed when... He says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's where we'll leave off. It's the word of the Lord. We say, thanks be to God. You can be seated. Part of that verse right there, verse 13, has become a a rather common idiom in, in our culture, an idiom is a kind of a figurative way of saying something. And 
Once in a while, you'll hear people say, oh, well, they are really the salt of the earth. And figuratively, what they're saying is, wow, those are really good. Those are really honest people. Or, or you hear uh, a couple others are, oh, he was a bit salty with me, meaning, you know, a little bit rude, maybe a little bit uh, irritated, a little agitated, maybe a little bit mean. Um, we, we hear, oh, I've got to get back to the salt mines, which means get back to the drudgery of, of our work, or, or, oh, that was really rubbing salt in my wound. And, and that's a way of saying that, you know, <laughs> That was a way of making my unhappiness just a little bit worse. Thank you very much. Uh, take it with a grain of salt. You've heard that one before. It kind of means, yeah, I don't completely believe something or whatever you're telling me, I've got to take it with a little grain of salt because it could be a little sketchy. Or you, maybe you hear, oh yeah, they're really worth one salt. Meaning to keep them around is worth every penny of what we pay them. Jesus says, we are the salt of the earth. I was reading a little bit of uh, Dennis Kinlaw, and, and he, he was recalling a, a story from his childhood. He, he was talking about a chore that, that uh, they'd have to do every fall. It was one of those uh, that he would just as soon forget. It was one of those chores that was uh, hateful yet necessary, one of those jobs that that during the Depression when you didn't have refrigerators that you had to do. And, and he knew that one day in the fall when he came home from school, there would be no, no going out in the backyard and playing ball because there would be a butchered pig in the backyard and you'd have to tend to that pig. And mom would slice up the meat and, and uh, Dennis's job was to rub salt into the pieces of meat to cure it, to preserve it. And then they would hang it out in the smokehouse. And he, he was saying, you know, the only, the only thing that got me through that job was imagining the smell of bacon frying in the pan or seeing that big ham out on the table during the holidays. It got him through. He was remembering that one day they were having some special guests over to the house. And mom had said, hey, Dennis, I want you to go out to the smokehouse, and I want you to get the big ham. You know the one I'm talking about. He said, yeah, I know which one you're talking about. So he went out to the smokehouse, and he got that bag down, and, and they brought it inside and, and took it out of the bag, and his mom had it up there on the, the counter, and she got out the big butcher knife, and, and Dennis recalls, I remember just salivating at the mouth, waiting for her to cut into that ham so I could get a look at that meat, and she started to slice into that, and and he said, then I had two simultaneous and shocking perceptions. One was of the frown on my mother's face, and the other was of the most offensive odor that I have ever smelled. The ham and the interior was full of maggots. Yuck. And his mother, he remembers, she just looked at me kind of with that glare that moms sometimes have, and she just said, son, not enough salt. See, salt is a preservative. Uh, we, li we live in a day wh when, where our society is, is filled with corruption. Uh, it it's hard to look around and not see that standards are being relaxed in an effort to be inclusive. Uh, 
standards are being relaxed so that everybody feels good about their behavior. See, there's a distinct move away in our society from any absolute moral standard. And see, the problem isn't the problem isn't that evil is really powerful. Evil only works in the absence of holiness. Wherever Jesus reigns supreme, evil stands about as much chance of living as maggots do in salt. Jesus says, we are the salt of the earth. We live in the world. We don't shelter ourselves from the world. But we are the salt that can be rubbed in into the world and, and it prevents it from decaying. We are the salt of the earth. We are the positive influence that calls out corruption and drives it back. Salt's a preservative. It's also a flavor enhancer, isn't it? Mmm, I like me some salt. You know, I like sweet snacks. What do you prefer, sweet or salty? I mean, there, there's something good about, you know, jelly beans or warm chocolate chip cookies or, or a nice bowl of ice cream, but, but then there's the, uh, the salty and the crunchy snacks, the, you know, potato chips or Doritos or peanuts or, or popcorn. I mean, I say yes to all of it, uh, but sometimes you just have a hankering for something salty. A little salt enhances the flavor of lots of things. I think, you know, sprinkling a little salt on a freshly grilled steak or on corn on the cob. Um, One of the most popular coffee drinks right now is a salted caramel latte. And so salt is just a flavor enhancer. Jesus says, we are the salt of the earth. Christians are to be the flavoring in life. We're to add flavor and zest for life that that many people seek out, but they never find. There's lots of people who are seeking happiness. There's lots of people who are seeking joy. There's lots of people who, who are seeking fulfillment in their life, and they're turning to money or sex or power or position or possessions or whatever it is. There's a lot of people looking for all of those things in the wrong places. They're looking into things that will never provide that like Jesus will. Sadly, though, uh, many Christians come off, as my mentor would say, like they were weaned on a dill pickle. (laughs) Many times, you know, Christians are just viewed as sour, suck-the-joy-out-of-life kind of people. But Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth. It should be opposite You are the ones who bring the zest and the joy into life. In in a world that's plagued by by worry and depression, Christians should be the the ones who remain calm and, and filled with joy. In a world that seems bleak and dangerous and angry and fearful, Christians should be the one who radiate the love of Christ into this, to be the people who bring hope, to be the people who bring encouragement to a world that's struggling. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. See, saltiness isn't something that we control. You're salty or you're not. It's a chemical. You're either salt or you're not salt. We don't control the saltiness. 
It comes as a result of living in intimacy with God. Jesus moves on to another metaphor. He says, not only are you salt of the earth, but you are the light of the world. And this metaphor makes a little bit more sense to us. We understand what light is, and, and I grew up in and around the Great Lakes region, and I'm fascinated with lighthouses. Some lighthouses there would, would mark where there was, uh, the, sh- the waters would be shallow, where there would be a, a sandbar, and ships coming in should, should avoid this area because it might run aground. Some of the lighthouses were up on rocky cliffs as a, as a warning. To, you don't want to drive your boat over here because you'll crash on the rocks and it'll tear your boat to pieces. Some lighthouses were the beacon that marked uh, the harbor. Light is used for lots of different things. Some, some lights signal the path that we should follow. When you're flying in to an airport at night, it's lights that mark the runway so that the airplane and, and the pilot, uh, so that the pilot knows exactly which airstrip to land on. It, it marks the way with beacons of light up and down the sides. Some, some lights are signals of danger. The warning lights that say, keep out, you don't want to come here because it's only trouble. And some lights are just used to illuminate a room. I think of kids when they're fearful in the night and are having a bad dream or, or they think something scary is in their closet. What do you do? You turn the lights on. It chases away the darkness that they feel. Jesus says we are the light of the world. We light the way to Christ. We act as a beacon to avoid danger and, and we shine the light of Christ in the world to chase away the darkness. Two metaphors. You're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. But why does Jesus talk about salt and light? What, what's he getting at? These are really nice metaphors, but what's really the point that he's driving at? And I think he's trying to get across the notion to us that those who are his followers are to be public witnesses for him and his way of life in the world. Verse 16, let your light shine before others, that they may see what? Your good deeds, your lifestyle, how you live according to the commands of Jesus, and what? To glorify your Father in heaven. Our job as disciples is to be a witness, to be something visible to other people, and our job is to bring glory to our Father in heaven. See, Jesus has picked up on some biblical terms that were found in the Old Testament. They were, they were traditional parts of Israel's mission. The Old Testament spoke of God's people as, as a light to the nation. I mean, over there in the prophet Isaiah, he, he, uh, he talks about, um, in Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7, "'I, the Lord, have called you into righteousness.'" I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light, a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And then over in chapter 49, he picks up on the same kind of metaphor in in verse 9. 
verse 6, Isaiah 49, verse 6, he says, Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on their scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into gold and bow down and worship it. He says, You are a light for the Gentiles, that his salvation may reach the ends of the earth. See, if Jesus is this prophesied light, if he's the prophesied light that Isaiah talks about way back in chapter 9, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Matthew picks up on that text. Matthew chapter 4, verse 16. Matthew says, Jesus is this light in the darkness. He is the light that people who are walking in dark will see. And over in John chapter 1, the the very first few verses that, that John writes in his gospel, some of the most beautiful poetry in all of Scripture, in him was life, and that life was the light of the world. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, if here's the connection. If Jesus is that prophesied light, if, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, if Jesus is what other people looked at him and said, yeah, this is, this is the light of the world, then as his disciples, we are also that light because we should reflect his nature in and through our life. We are to be this light that shines to all people because we radiate his glory. If there's still any question, you know, you can turn to Matthew 28, the last two verses of, of Matthew's gospel, verse 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's pretty straightforward stuff right there. The very reason that we have been created, the very reason that we have breath at all, the reason that we have been saved is to preach the gospel and to make disciples in the nations. Yet I hear a lot of people who say things like, yeah, I understand that, but I'm just not called to that. You might be called to that, but, but we're not all called to the same thing. And I have to say, you know what? You're absolutely 100% right. We're not all called to the same thing. I'm a pastor. Some of you who are teachers. Some of you are doctors. Some accountants. Some stay-at-home moms. Some of you work construction. Some of you are students. We're, we're not all called to the same thing. But when did we decide that following the Great Commission was a matter of calling? When when did we decide that, that we should wait around for God to call us to do something that he's already commanded us to do? 
See, witnessing is not a calling. Witnessing is a command. Which leads me to the question, do you believe it? Do you you believe that the Great Commission, that those words that we just read, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, Do you believe that that was a command or do you think that was just a suggestion? Something that we can pick and choose. Well, some people are called to that. I don't really feel like that. Every one of us, regardless of what we have been called to do, was created for this very purpose. It's the different callings that we have that are the way that God gets this done in and through our lives. It adds vibrancy to the world. All of us are called to do something different, but that's the way that God moves out into society, into various places. We are the light of the world and the salt of the earth, and if God can sprinkle that around and turn those lights on in so many different places... That's how he gets his job done. That's how his gospel message gets to the masses. By people, us, who are out in the world as his representatives. Being the salt. Being the zest. Being the light that shows people the path to truth. We're saved to be the salt and light and make the glory of God known in the entire world. You believe that? I mean, that's the fundamental question that we've arrived at. And it, it comes across another way. Do you, do you believe this book? That's a yes or a no question. Do you believe it? You can't believe some of it and not other parts of it. You can't pick and choose which parts you're going to follow and which parts that you're going to, you know, that doesn't really apply to me because I'm not really feeling it. you believe this book, then you follow it. It's as simple as that. And if you answer yes, I believe this book, it has really radical implications for your life. Paul says that he was saved to preach. Over there in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he says says that God revealed his son in me so that I might preach, share the gospel to the Gentiles, to the masses. Or in Romans chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, Paul says, I am obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That's pretty much everybody, right? Greeks and non-Greeks. You're either a Greek or you're a non-Greek in the Bible here. You're either wise or you're foolish. There's no middle ground there. So Paul is talking about everything. I am obligated. Obligated is an interesting word. Ophiletes is the Greek word. It means we translate it obligate, but it's a financial word. Obligate, as in I have a debt. I have an obligation that I must pay. I owe a debt to somebody Paul says that he is in debt to the people who don't know the gospel. Paul is saying that every saved person owes the gospel to every lost person. Period. 
And what do you do when you know that you have a debt? You start making payments, right? We are to spend our lives. We are to spend our time, spend our resources to pay on this debt. So if somebody asks you, you you got debt? The answer is yes, I'm in debt. As a saved person, you owe the gospel to every lost person that you know. One of the most frequently asked questions I think Christians ask is, how do I ter- determine what God's will is for my life? Have you heard that question? Maybe you've wondered that. What, what is God's will for my life? And I think it's a simple answer, <laughs> actually. You look around at the world. How many lost people there are in the world? You, you can narrow it down to the state of Washington. You could narrow it down to Lewis County and wonder about the number of lost people. Nationally, the researchers tell us that about 40% of people say they go to church regularly. 40%. Washington State, we're in the bottom five. It's closer to about 34%. Oh, but wait. Uh, the researchers also say recently that uh, they think those statistics are actually a little bit wrong, skewed, because of what's called a halo effect. They think and they have determined that people who are asked the question, do you go to church and how often, they think that, that people uh, answer with the halo effect and, and they answer more positively than what their behavior would suggest. So, yeah, you know, I probably should say I go to church. And if I only go once a month, I probably should say I go twice a month. So the statistics now that, they are, that they're talking about is that nationally, only about 20% of people attend church regularly. 20%. It's one in five. There's lost people everywhere. And we sit around waiting for a tingly feeling to go up and down our spine to, to, to cause us to rise up and go talk to some of these people. We wonder what the will of God is in our life when one in five people come to church regularly. When it gets right down to it, being a credible Christian witness is part of our bedrock. It's the command of Jesus to go and to make disciples. See, we're God's plan for reaching people. There's not a backup plan. There is no plan B. We are God's plan for reaching lost people. Go ahead, let that sink in for a minute or two because that's fairly heavy. That's a burden. We are the plan. Maybe it's better to say it something like this. The eternal destiny of humans is hanging in the balance. If you project forward a hundred years from now, everybody who you know is going to be in one of two places. They're going to either be in heaven or they're going to be in hell. Jesus says we are the salt of the earth. Jesus says we are the light of the world. We bring the zest. We bring the joy. We help point the way to Christ. We flash the lights 
that warn people to stay away from bad things. We turn on the lights in the room and chase away the darkness because the darkness cannot overcome the light. You are the salt. You are the light. And Jesus is counting on us to expand the kingdom. We are his plan. Paul says that we are in debt to everybody who does not know Christ. Our job, our mission, our business as followers of Jesus is to be that credible Christian witness wherever we go. I know that's hard. It scares me a little bit. I can be honest. I know my past. I, I know what areas in my life that I struggle with. I know the questions that I have that I don't have answers to. There's still scriptures in these pages that, that I have to wrestle with every day. There's things that Jesus asks me that, that sometimes I just completely whiff on. Then, then I think about all the excuses that I can generate. <laughs> I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Uh, I don't want to come across as judgmental. I, I might say something that's really off the wall and stupid. And what I say might turn somebody off to Christ for eternity. Do you wrestle with questions like that? I think it's pretty common. But I think our God is bigger than everything that I just said. I don't think anything that I say is going to prevent somebody, is going to prevent Jesus from cracking through to somebody at some point in the future. See, See, there's one thing about being a witness as we close here that's really important. If you're a witness, if you know the story, you have to be willing to tell your story. A witness that is unwilling to tell their story, what they saw is absolutely 100% worthless. Jesus talks about that in our scripture today. Salt that's lost its flavor. Salt that has been diluted becomes worthless, right? If you're unwilling to share your story, what Jesus has just said is disciples who are not willing to live a life of discipleship, disciples of Jesus who are unwilling to do what he says, unwilling to be salt, unwilling to be life, are absolutely worthless and should be thrown out and trampled on. If that doesn't rock your world, I don't know what will. If that doesn't grip you to your core, I got nothing else. Jesus has just said, and we live in a world that values people feeling worthwhile. We live in a society that will coddle people to make sure that they feel good, to make sure that everybody feels like they're a winner. And Jesus has just gone opposite of that. He said, if, you're, if you call yourself a disciple of mine, but you're unwilling to live the lifestyle of a disciple, then you're worthless. Wow. That's been sitting with me all week long. 
That's the business end of the stick right there. And that's one, I still have an open wound back here because that one hurts. When you really think about it, has this book gripped your life? Has the fact that Jesus died on a cross to save you from your sins gripped your life in a way that provokes you and motivates you to live as one of his disciples and to be a witness and to share your story with somebody else. So when somebody says, you got debt, what do you say? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And maybe it's time that... um, Maybe it's time that we get back to the salt mines to start paying down the debt to the people that we owe the gospel. The people of God said, Amen.